Kia Well, hey, Greg, here we are. Another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And I see you're back in Colorado. Yeah, temporarily, John. You know, this is just my stopping point to uh, come home, change clothes, and keep going, as usual. That's why you have your office at the airport. That's right. Makes for quick getaways. Yes. Yes. So, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Good. Well, you know, the big thing uh, with uh, my travel, of course, and we've hit it at nauseum, and that is, of course, uh, passenger discord on airplanes. And we're not going to talk about that, but it's just, it is ridiculous. And they've extended the mask mandate now till uh, January of next year, which should really fire up a lot of people. So uh, traveling over the next several months is going to be a real joy. I may end up learning how to drive long distance again. <laughs> I, I, this is just, it's, it, it is what it is, but you know, it's just sad. You got to grow some, grow some patience. If you're going to, you know, fly, you know, we always talk about a time to spare, go by air. You, you just got to live with it. So. Yeah. It's a sign of the times. It is. Well, absolutely. All, and they're all rookies. So it's just, it starts, it starts at the ticket counter, continues on to uh, security yep. and then the check-in process. I can't tell you how many people stand in line to be first on there and the group nine oh, the I agents know. have to send them back. I know. I, I don't know what these people are thinking. And oh, by the way, this airplane is not going anywhere until everybody's on board. Yeah. So I know everybody's fighting to bring, you know, the kitchen sink and everything else and try and stuff it under their seat or in the overhead and it's just so ridiculous but it just is what a, it is just buy a a, a, t a one level up ticket and you get better seating yeah <laughs> yeah well when you go from 59 dollars to 859 dollars people aren't doing that yeah that's true that's true i can't believe some uh how inexpensive some fares are lately yep but some of those fares are also rebounding very quickly Yes. I was, you know, I was flying, I was still commuting back and forth to DC and other places last year. And yeah, the, the ticket prices were cheap. Now that same flight has gone up by hundreds of dollars almost overnight. So, yes. Well, before we get into your, your selection this time. Yep. I'm going to put you on the hot seat. You turn on the tables on me. Yep. I like to remind everybody that this program is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as a Vemco Insurance. If you need insurance on your airplane, you need, if you're a CFI and you need insurance, give a Vemco a call. They specialize in general aviation insurance. They know what they're talking about. Much of the, or many of their staff members are already pilots. Other staff members fly their simulator, which I'm jealous yeah, they have a simulator right in their building, and uh, they're good people. I mean, I, I really was impressed with their knowledge listening to them when we were out in Oshkosh, and I was like a fly in a wall listening to them talk to uh, their customers that would come up and other people, potential customers, and I was pretty impressed uh, the knowledge. And in particular, one of those persons that were there was not a pilot. But Boyd understood all the terms and could could engage in a conversation with a pilot uh, really, really well. So if you, you know, need insurance, 
any kind of insurance, give Avemco a call, 888-879-0389. And if you mention the show, you'll get a fast 5% off. And let me just mention one thing, John. I've been getting uh, several inquiries and seeing actually on some of the aviation uh, blogs and that kind of stuff that uh, older pilots, and in one uh, particular is a friend of mine who's now having issues because he turned 70. He's having issues insuring his airplane because of, quote, his age. And, um, and I found that very disconcerting because I know this guy. He's in very good shape. He has a lot of ratings. I mean, the guy, he's a, he's a CFII. I mean, the, the guy belongs in the air. He's in perfect health and he's having problems. So I actually called our folks over at Avemco and asked this question about whether or not there's any kind of ceiling or limitation uh, with regard to uh, age through Avemco. And I was pleasantly surprised where they said, we don't do that. Have each of these folks call us. We will talk their situation through. We will figure out what we can do to help them. So that's the kind of response I want to hear from an insurance company, because uh, I know you, I mean, you know, <laughs> older than dirt. I don't. I, I think they'll even still insure you, John. <laughs> so I know it was coming. <laughs> uh, of course you did. But the fact is, is that if you are getting into that age bracket where you think you're going to have issues, please give Avemco a call. Let them, you know, hear the story, what your uh, skill level is, of course, the types of aircraft you're flying and things like that. And you know what? I'm, I'm glad that they're, they're willing to talk and, and work a, a solution out. So that's why I like them and love them really as a, as a sponsor of ours. And I've had Avemco Insurance. I believe in them and some people, you know, may even scoff at the fact, well, they're a little more expensive. Yeah. Just remember like everything else in life, you get what you pay for. So you get 5% off now. if just by saying, listen to the show. That's right. Absolutely. Well, I know that we're going to be talking about an accident that I selected finally, because uh, you've been the selection master um, with regard to a, uh, can't call it a midair because one of the airplanes was on the ground, but it was an on-ground collision between uh, 737 and a uh, Swearingen Metroliner at Los Angeles International Airport back in 1991, an oldie but a goodie. But there were a lot of lessons learned from that accident. There were a lot of issues brought up uh, with regard to air traffic control and equipment that we're going to get into. And of course, uh, you have some real familiarity with it because you were still working for U.S. Air at the time, training basically your replacement because you had been the guy who would respond to these accidents. But I've got to unload something real quick, John, before we get into that. Uh, I, I am getting really tired of watching YouTube videos and seeing uh, people chiming in. And there's a number of folks that have their own little websites and YouTube channels where they immediately right after an accident dissect it based on factoids and fiction and create a storyline to come up with their version of a probable cause that is based on nothing other than a witness statement or a video. And I'm really tired of this because the, the bottom line message that they put out on their respective uh, video chats and everything else is just plain wrong. And I can say that 
with a high level of confidence because a number of these accidents are accidents that I am currently working on right now on behalf of clients. And I can tell you that there is a backstory, John. There is truly a backstory. And these guys who are provo- uh, you know, promoting and, and providing factoid information that they don't understand, they haven't verified, they haven't validated, and they don't know. They're going to the FAA website and pulling up uh, pilot credentials off the FAA website, not understanding that the date of issuance on that FAA website is not the date that they actually got their certificates. If they really understood how that whole system works, every time you get a new certificate rating or you even change your address and they reissue your certificate, or if you lost it and they had to reissue it, you're going to have a new issuance date on there. That doesn't, it doesn't jive with when you got the certificate or the rating. It jives with when they reissued you your new certificate. You know, I mean, CFIs every two years, we get a new certificate and the new issuance date is the date that they send it to us. So these guys have put out bad information. I speak with experience because one of the bloggers out there that has a video channel with over 200,000, I guess, viewers, which he's spewing stuff that's just wrong. Uh, I know the story on that particular event. It's obvious that this 200-hour pilot who has no basis of experience is shooting off his mouth about a pilot who's flying a very complex airplane and has blamed him for the accident when he really doesn't understand the mechanical backstory that I'm currently working on. And then, of course, another accident that just recently happened. I mean, recent within the last three weeks of this show, um, the uh, the video <laughs> junior investigator. Um, has, I, saw that. I saw that as well. Has has criticized the pilot in this particular instance and, and calling the cause of the accident. I mean, already the cause of the accident as special disorientation and loss of control. And that's just simply not true. And then they looked at the FAA website and believed that this guy's pilot certificate was uh, issued in 2016 when that is just total fiction. He's been flying for a hell of a lot longer than that. And all I wanna do is caution our viewers and listeners that these guys are spewing information without any facts, without doing any investigative work. They're taking factoids, building a storyline so that they can put this stuff out there and get viewers. And it's amazing how many people are listening and and not looking at it from an entertainment. You know, (laughs) I look at it as entertainment in the wrong way. These guys are idiots. And all I do is listen to them and shake my head because they are putting out bad information. And if anybody heeds any of the messages that these guys are putting out and dissecting accidents within a week or two after the event, then, and, and you believe it, then you need to get out of aviation and get out of aviation now. The NTSB, who you and I both work for, we spend months, and while you and I have been critical of the NTSB and their processes and, and that kind of stuff, and whether or not they've dug up all the facts, conditions, and circumstances, the fact is, is that it takes a heck of a lot longer than a week or several days to investigate these accidents. And to come up with these so-called probable causes by, and, and the thing that's really scary, John, one's an airline pilot, one's an ex-airline pilot, and they pontificate as though they've been there and done that. 
they have not been there and not done that. And accident investigation for aviation safety improvement is critical. And that's what we're going to talk about in this accident that I've selected today. Well, you know, uh, society re reflects sometimes what we get in the press and what they see on TV. And it's the instant answers of every newspaper and every uh, TV reporter wants. Plane crash, what do you think caused it? And you, yeah. and you got people that'll get sucked right into that and they'll mouth off them on, uh, based on some very, very limited information. You know, you and I did an, an accident in uh, California involving a DC-8, and we were months into it before that thing did a 90-degree turn. Yes. Right? It was going down one path, and uh, one bit of information came up and turned that thing more than 90 degrees, actually. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Turned that whole thing around uh, just because of one additional new fact that came in, and yep. then we went down that pathway. And ValueJet was the same way. And TWA 800 was the same way. And I mean, it, there is a process and the, the sanctity, the thorough and methodical process that is required to develop all the facts, conditions, and circumstances so that we can understand not only what happened, but how we're going to prevent it from happening again takes more than a week. And you really have to develop it. You have to ferret out fact from fiction. You have to be able to validate it with other things, whether it's substantiating it with, with actual factual information from a flight manual or a policy or a procedure or multiple witnesses, or you get it from a flight data recorder, cockpit voice recorder. It doesn't matter, but it takes time. And you cannot I mean, these people think they're, they're stellar. Well, if they are so good, then I guess we don't need the NTSB or the FAA to investigate accidents because they got it all figured out already. And, uh, you know, it's great to be able to, you know, start beating up on pilots and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, pointing the finger at them, that's a travesty to the family members because you've just indicted their loved one without any basis in fact. And it's unfair to them it's unprofessional to say the least. And uh, it's just unconscionable. And you got to let the process work by the people who understand the process, who are trained to do the process, and then do an analysis. You want to analyze someone's you know, bottom line like you and I do with the NTSB, where we're critical of them because they didn't look at a lot of information. That's fine. But wait for all that information to come out. You can't get that information in a day or even you know, a month after the accident, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, right. that's why I'm doing what I'm doing for my clients. I'm still investigating and getting information well beyond or well after the NTSB has concluded their investigation. Well, most people don't realize that the, FA, the NTSB and the FAA, uh, they're looking at the most probable cause, all right? If, they, if we ran every accident to ground the way many of the attorneys do, uh, a, the budget on the NTSB would have to go a heck of a lot larger and yep. more staff, right? But it, it's just to get to the point where the, they can identify the shortcomings and implement some changes. May, maybe not all the changes that need to be done because you only have a, a window of time to get changes made. Yes. A 10-year-old accident, you've lost all the interest of everybody in making any changes. That's why sometimes the uh, right in the beginning, three three months into it or five months into it, 
when the NTSB talks to the airlines and the manufacturers at, in those meetings, and they put the facts out, not in, not an analysis, they put the facts out, those industry people will go back and make changes before the NTSB even digs into the changes. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, and, the and but they're, the I'm sorry. System, right? That's the benefit of the party system. They bring that information back and make changes before there even is a recommendation made. Yeah, and, and that doesn't just apply to large airplanes. That applies to all the investigations that are done by the safety board. Um, and the FAA does provide some of those facts when they go out on behalf of the safety board. Um, you know, it's just, it's very frustrating. And even in this 20-year-old accident we're going to talk about today, even though the changes have been made, a lot of them were implemented, not, <laughs> albeit not in a timely manner, but they were made. Um, there are still lessons to be learned and information that can benefit today's pilots in, in some way, shape, or form. Because the situations that uh, both of these flight crews were in, communication and a variety of other things, this is important not only to other flight crews, but as pilots who operate as a single pilot in the aircraft, you have to take on that workload of that second pilot you have to be really that second set of ears and eyes that you would normally have in a crew. Now you, you got to wear both hats. You got to be really plugged in situational awareness. And I think that uh, us dissecting this accident is really beneficial because this was one of those accidents where it started not in the aircraft, not by either flight crew, but in fact, it started on the ground in the control tower. Yes, and a long, long chain of events in this particular accident, a long chain of events. Everybody, probably everybody that's listening to our show understands the chain of events in a accident. But this particular chain draw, jumps from company to company to specialty, from to pilot, uh, to air traffic controller, to the supervisor in the air traffic controller tower. I mean, everybody had a, a hand in it. And uh, if just one fact changed in that sequence, the accident would not have happened. Yeah. And, and that was, it was a tragic accident. And of course, you know, when you start dissecting all the facts, conditions, and circumstances, you, you can immediately see all the disconnects because you have three different uh, groups. That is, you have the air traffic controllers, you have the pilots in the Swearingen Metroliner, the SkyWest uh, Swearingen, and then, of, of course, the flight crew in the U.S. Air 737, kind of operating autonomously rather than in conjunction with each other. And those disconnects, as the investigation points out, uh, were really no fault by their own, if you will, um, it's just that there were distractions. There was a, lock, a, last, a lack of situational awareness, um, a little bit of complacency and a variety of other things. So let's get into it, John, and let's talk about it. This was uh, an accident, like I said, that happened 20 years ago at Los Angeles International Airport. It was at night. Uh, there was not a lot. It wasn't a real heavy traffic period during that time. Um, there was a uh, U.S. Air 737 that was on final approach coming in, landing on runway 24 left. There was a SkyWest Metroliner that was getting ready to depart on its flight. And the local controller 
who I happen to know her history because she had been out here in Aspen, Colorado, uh, spent some time. She became a controller back in uh, 1982, uh, spent time out here in the West and then uh, moved up to Los Angeles into the tower up there in about 1989. And she was working that local control position uh, during the course of this accident. And um, as the, the 737 was on final approach, he, the, the crew was given a landing clearance. The first officer's flying the airplane. Um, just prior to that, the local controller had cleared the Sky West flight, 559, uh, 5569, I think was the flight number, John, if I remember right. And, um, and they had cleared that crew into position and hold on the runway. But where she cleared them into position and hold was not at the threshold, but in fact at an intersection. And it was identified as intersection 45, which is about 2,200 feet from the threshold. So as a pilot right now, you're already setting up a dynamic because we're always looking at that threshold and just beyond in that, in that uh, landing zone you know, for obstructions, whether it's an aircraft, a truck or whatever. That's our fix, our fixated point, because that's where we're aiming for during touchdown. We're not really looking, uh, you know, 2,200 feet down the runway per se, looking for an obstruction. Uh, given the fact that it was a nighttime operation because it was February, of course, all the runway lights, anybody that's ever flown into a large airport, especially LAX, knows that uh, they light up the runways like a Christmas tree. So there's a number of lights, not only for the runway environment, but the associated taxiways and the airport environment itself. And oh, by the way, there are buildings that surround that runway environment and they too have lights on them and create a, a, a situational issue, maybe not so much for the pilots necessarily, but definitely for the controllers and the NTSB pointed that out in their report. Long story short, um, the local controller had cleared the Metroliner into basically a position and hold, but there was a procedure in place at Los Angeles that flight crews wouldn't turn on their external lights, typically strobe lights and landing lights, until they were cleared for takeoff and on the roll. And that was to cut down on one, flashing lights and blinding lights so that uh, pilots wouldn't kill their night vision and things like that. So, of course, now you have degraded the conspicuity or at least the visibility of an airplane sitting on the runway by having uh, a more blossoming or illuminating light that could draw a pilot's attention on final approach that there is an airplane on the runway. Again, unbeknownst to the crew that was landing, uh, they touched down. Not, not knowing that there was an airplane on the runway, the first officer was flying the airplane. They touched down on the mains, and as he was getting ready to lower the nose, they collided. And of course, the Metroliner ended up underneath the 737 and literally crushed it. And the airplanes both went sliding down the runway several thousand feet off the, it was the left side of the runway towards the terminal. And of course, there was a post-crash fire that ensued. And, um, and I know that you have a lot of familiarity with this accident. Um, I was working a number of accidents at the time, so I wasn't intimately involved with it, but I know you were. And that's why I thought it would be a good accident because there's ATC issues. There's still flight crew issues in this. Of course, there's post-accident issues. And then from the perspective 
of procedures, uh, there were some airport issues as well. So I'll let you pick it up and then I'm just going to start pounding you with questions, John, just like you do with me. Okay. Well, uh, one of the things that you left out when this airplane went sliding down the runway, it didn't ended up striking a standalone building that was a uh, firehouse at one point in time. And that penetrated the left-hand side of the cockpit area, killing the captain and also uh, jamming the, the mm. uh, L1, which is the front door that we normally get in and out. And from. this is on the 737. Right. So, the, so right off the bat, the exit on the front left is blocked. You can't open the door. They did try, the flight attendant did try. Uh, and the fire had already started because when that, like you said, when the nose was lowered on top of the airplane, the, the two turning propellers took care of that. So the fuel from the, uh, the, the Metro liner uh, ignited and we had a, a rip roaring fire right underneath the airplane. And it didn't take very long uh, in that process for that fire to penetrate the, the uh, aircraft in the front end. And then we had the oxygen bottles that, that live underneath the floor under first class uh, were providing oxygen to a fuel fed fire and it turned it into a blowtorch. Yeah. And that, and that took care of the floor around the right hand number one door. So we lost that door as well because of access to it. So it was jammed and the floorboard, the floor was disappearing rapidly as the fire went up. So we've lost our front doors. Now, as you move back in the airplane, this was a 737-300. So it has only got single windows, hatches, they call them, uh, for passenger egress, self-help uh, hatches, one on each side. And with the rip roaring fire uh, on the left-hand side of the airplane, because the, that's sort of where the, the, uh, the smaller airplane ended up, that rip roaring fire made that hatch uh, unusable. They did get the back doors open on the airplane and they quickly lost the uh, L2, which is the rear door on the left-hand side. The slide deployed, but the fire ate the slide and uh, deflated it. And so they lost that. On the opposite side, the right rear door, they, some passengers were able to get out in that area, but that slide also became uh, uh, not usable. Mm -hmm. So the main exit was really the overwing exit. And while all this fire is going on and people are trying to get out this one hatch overwing, we had two mental giants of passengers decide to have a fist fight mm. in the airplane. And uh, that delayed the evacuation a little bit until yeah. that finally settled out. Also, yeah. one of the issues that came up as part of the evacuation was when you open the hatch, you pull it in and put it down. Well, that hatch, that window area, it's bigger than the window, that, that area blocked the aisle. Wow. And, and many yeah. of the survivors said they had trouble getting over it. And as a result of this accident, they actually changed the procedures. And now you, in an emergency, they tell you to throw it out the window, throw yeah. it out on the wing. They never wanted to do that because many passengers, many times passengers 
for whatever reason, panic or whatever, on a normal flight, will jump up and open that. And if 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 they read the card and threw it out, because there's also protrusions out of that, you yeah. can put a hole in the wing or gouge the wing, and that's the end uh, yeah. of that flight. So there was always reasons. And as a result of this, now Boeing and the other manufacturers, they pivot those hatches to swing up. They hinge. You won't throw them out anymore. When you yeah. the handle, they spring loaded and they they uh, pivot up out of the way so that you can get out of the airplane. And those and those all of those doors also have slides. The four doors do. Yeah. The overwing on this airplane uh, not required. Some wide bodies have slides. Yeah. The, the overwater area uh, airplanes and, and that kind of stuff, top stuff. Um, and, and, you know, just digressing a little bit, John, your role when you, when this accident happened was what? I, I was actually the, in charge of the machinist union uh, accident investigation committee. And, and basically it was a few person show for a number of years. And then the, the machinist union made a conscious decision to professionalize their team. And I was responsible uh, for the training of the team. And uh, up to that point, I was doing a lot of the investigations myself. And uh, not just on US Air, because the Machinist Union represented uh, a number of airlines, maintenance people on a number of airlines. I was involved with uh, teams from, from virtually all the airlines that the Machinist Union represented. So as my role increased, uh, we were training people behind me to take over the roles of uh, the, the, the party coordinator and investigators. So I had trained a team and this was their first accident. So I was hovering uh, around these guys uh, just to make sure everything went all right. But uh, so you're coaching them through all of this. This is, uh, this is their, their baptism accident what were some of the issues that they were seeing that you kind of foresaw and you're trying to coach them through all of these issues? Because we've talked on previous shows about the complexities, uh, even from, you know, the NTSB side where, you know, as the investigator in charge, you're trying to choreograph people. You're trying to get them to move in the same direction. You're looking for the facts, conditions, and circumstances. There are other external issues going on that you, know, you try to delegate and get other people to, uh, to help you with. But from your perspective with your team, what are you trying to do and how are you interacting and how are they interacting with the NTSB to develop these facts, conditions, and circumstances? Well, the very first problem that we had that came up was that uh, one of the, our investigators, a young guy that I trained actually, and uh, he went to the fire chief and said that he was part of the accident investigation team. The fire chief pressed him right into service. So when they got the fire out, he was the first one in the cockpit to go up and to turn off the uh, battery switches to clean up the cockpit. And then after that was done, and of course the captain was still there and strapped into his seat, as well as uh, the passengers in the cabin. And these are the deceased passengers, correct? And the captain the flight attendant and the captain and a number of passengers. So he had to go uh, over those people 
to get into the cockpit to, to, to take care of that task. And then after the airplanes were stabilized, he is, was the one who crawled underneath the airplane to hook up the fuel truck, fuel nozzle under the wing to suck the fuel out of the, out of the 737 fuel tanks. And, and, and again, we've talked about this. You, you know, it, it takes a lot of mental strength to be an accident investigator. People just think, well, you go out there, you kick tin, you know, you come up with a probable cause and you're done. It's, it's a very emotional thing and you have to be able to deal with it because we're seeing the worst side. We're interacting with the worst side of aviation. That is the death and destruction of an aircraft and of course the humans who occupy those aircraft. And this was a devastating accident because the aircraft underneath the 737 all the passengers and the crew on that airplane died um, because uh, they were they were crushed underneath the 737. And then, of course, the ensuing fire, the 737, like you were talking about, there were out of 89 people, 23 that were, were fatalities. And you're, you're having to work around all of that. And even after the victims have been recovered and removed, you're still working in that environment where it has to be very tempered and very respectful for what happened while you do your job. And, and, and it takes a special kind of person uh, to be able to compartmentalize and handle that. Not everybody can be an accident investigator. Well, one of the things that, that we emphasized in the training, the, the program I put together, was to, to have the uh, EAP committee uh, to be part of the investigation. And, that's, and that was your employee assistance program group, yes. EAP? Yes, so we we went uh, the extra mile with all all of that EAP stuff. We learned the hard way on uh, some accidents that occurred in the in the eighties. Uh, both the pilots and the mechanics, as we worked very closely with Alpa on the investigations uh, because we overlapped the areas of interest overlap so so much. So we were very uh, fortunate in those early years to be able to piggyback on the programs that the pilots had. But ultimately I put one in, in place for, for maintenance people. And, and sometimes the ramp personnel, the baggage people, because they're going to get in there and unload the airplane if it's not a total loss and fire. Uh, so it, it's a lot of moving parts in those first uh, 12 hours after an accident happens. Now, given the fact that you're on the maintenance side of the house and this is more of an operations and ATC accident, what's your contribution into the entire process overall? Well, first off, it's the procedures. You know, at this point in time, the first day, we didn't, we didn't know it was air traffic control. It took a while for, for that fax to, to surface between the voice recorder and the uh, tower tapes and all, so it took a little while. And uh, during this time, we're going through just making sure, uh, looking at the maintenance records, looking at the engines, making sure there was no problems with the airplane. Uh, did he have a gear collapse on landing? Uh, I mean, we didn't uh, know in the beginning that that airplane had been taxied in position hold. So it wasn't until like two days afterwards when all of that became clear, uh, you know, very clear. It, probably within 12 hours, we, we understood it, but understanding it 
and then having all the factual information gathered is two different things. Now, um, again, in your role or in your team's role, do you do you remain throughout the entire investigation? Are you relieved and you you know now that it's not a maintenance thing and relieved not in the sense that it's not maintenance, but relieved from participating in the investigation process, or do you stick it out through the entire process? No, no, we, we, we sign on for the entire process. So, you know, as we, I think I mentioned it in the very beginning, there's other things that come up in the part of an investigation that were not part of the causal factors, but they're things that needed to be fixed. In fact, I remember one very distinctly, uh, which was a BAC 111, that happened in Rochester, New York, and uh, yeah, I'm going to say 75 plus or minus a, a year. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that we discovered had nothing to do with the accident, all right, was the girth bar that controls the, the emergency escape slides in the airplane. Uh, they sit on that airplane for about five years. And we were finding that the stitching on the nylon uh, thread was failing. So when you open in an emergency, when you're vigorously opening the door, you ended up pulling on the girth bar, which attaches the slide to the airplane. And it was ripping. And I, I distinctly remember this. I've never forgotten this. So we had a big discussion at the accident scene about that. The engineer involved after the accident, he's back to work. Uh, he, was, he was working on getting an EO issued for that, and his boss uh, wasn't convinced. And that turned into a major discussion because he saw it firsthand and he was hell bent on, on getting that item fixed, and he did. And, and I remember that there were some issues, uh, at least they, they were prompted in this accident uh, with regard to fire blocking material. We've seen this in the past where for those that don't understand the fire blocking, each of the materials that are used on an airplane have to meet some sort of fire um, uh, retardant type standard, either um, be resistant or fireproof. And they have to meet a certain specification. When I did um, China Eastern, we found that the fire blocking material, even though there was no post-crash fire on that MD-11, we did find that the fire blocking material, the materials being used for the seats was inferior. It didn't meet standards. I remember the, an issue like that in this accident as well. There was some question about the fire retardant, fire resistant um, properties of the uh, seat material and some of the interior materials. Well, the foam, the seat cushion foam, same as the seat foam you have in your, on your couch behind you. All right, when that uh, ignites, it gives off fumes that are very detrimental to life. So one of the ways that they, they can't get rid of it, there isn't any substitute material that can be used to replace it. So what you have to do is try to delay the onset of that fire. And the way we do it on airplanes is there's a, a, another seat cover, if you will, in between the seat cover that you sit on and the foam cushion. And that material is very fire resistant. It's going to delay the start of a fire for many minutes. And it's actually tested by the FAA at the burn center uh, to do that. So you're going to protect that seat 
from catching fire for enough time for everybody to get out of the airplane. Now the rule is 90 seconds for evacuation. So I think that I'm going by memory here, so I could be wrong, but I, I think it was two and a half minutes before they that had to had to uh, contain itself without catching fire. But whatever the number is, all right, it is it's a delayer of it. The other thing is rugs. When the rugs burn prior to the the uh, new standards, when the rugs burn, they gave off all sorts of chemicals as well that yep. weren't very good for human beings. So slowly but surely, uh, through these regulations, we've upgraded the interiors on our airplanes. The sidewalls have been changed. Every, yeah. Virtually everything in the cabin has been changed to a material that delays the onset of those, those poisonous gases that will come out and come on combustion. And I think that one of the takeaways from just this discussion, John, is a reminder to not only passengers, but even crew members, and that is, in this particular accident, yet the airplane stayed upright. Yes, there was a post-accident fire. Um, a number of the exits were blocked, of course. Panic and anxiety sets in, and people are trying to fight to get out of that. Definitely try to, trying to get away from the fire. But this happened at night. You have no lights. You may not have the orientation. And if that airplane had rolled over on its side or upside down, now you are totally spatially disoriented as well. And that's why it's so important because you're not going to stand up to evacuate. Smoke rises, heat rises. So you don't want your head up in that cloud of smoke and heat. You're going to stay low. You're going to maybe even crawl on the floor trying to find that exit. That's why we have the exit path lighting and that kind of thing. But again, this is the reemphasis that no matter where you're sitting, you want to know where the exit is ahead of you and behind you. Because like you said, if the two forward cabin doors are not usable, you got to go find another exit. And, you know, in a high stress, high anxiety situation, you know, your brain shuts down and you want to be able to, to, to kind of be spring loaded, if you will, to make it to that secondary exit, or you are going to have panic. You are going to have fight. People are going to try and, you know, find their way to the front of the line, even if they aren't in the front of the line. You know, interesting the behavior. Uh, I participated in a in a uh, a demonstration at uh, Cranfield University in in London, outside of London, in the United Kingdom, and we had a bunch of people inside an airplane. We filled it with smoke, and I was outside. And there was a a flight attendant. It was all airline people in the airplane. Flight attendant was I think it was four or five rows aft of the emergency exit. And then the bell went off, your cabin is full of white smoke. Uh, so you couldn't see. The first one out the over, overwing exit was the flight attendant. Not even the people that were sitting there. Yeah. So, and uh, on this particular flight, there was a gentleman in the very first row of first class. He never even attempted to get up. He mm. was found perished with his seatbelt still on. You know, and that, that was a common thing as well. If you remember the in-flight fire with Air Canada, the DC-9 that ended up landing in Cincinnati, there were people that were found still strapped in their seat as well. And in these high stress, high anxiety situations, you, your brain reverts to what it knows best. And if you think about it in very simplistic terms, if you don't fly a lot, you don't know that 
you know, even though the flight attendants remind you of how the seatbelt works and you kind of scoff at it, you pull the flap in an airplane to open up that seatbelt in your car. How do you open it? You push the button and people were seen trying to push the button on the buckle that has an, a, a flap. Again, you know, stress does a lot, of course, panic and everything else. And that's why it's so important to just you know, implant that in your mind that you are in an airplane, you've got to pull the flap to get out of the seatbelt. You can't push the button because there is no button to push. One of the other things that I wanted to talk about, because there's a lot in this accident and it was very well done. And, and of course, uh, the, the written report really spells out a lot. Uh, if we start with air traffic control, there were issues with this uh, controller. Uh, she, this isn't her first rodeo with regard to uh, mis misidentifying airplanes and, and losing situational awareness. And you and I have talked about the loss of situational awareness a lot with pilots in cockpits, but it also happens, of course, in the maintenance hangar sometimes where during the handoffs, you know, guys don't know who's done work and everything else and their situational awareness is compromised. But here, now you have a situation up in the control tower where you have the controller who cleared the Metro liner into position and hold on an active runway. Now at LAX at the time, they were landing and departing on the same runways. There was a recommendation that the board made out of this accident. We'll talk about in a little bit. So she cleared the airplane into a position to hold. She's got an airplane on final. And then there was a, another Metro liner uh, being operated by wings West. They had landed, they had landed and were trying to taxi across the active runway. So they were holding short, talking to the local controller, trying to get a, and they had already inadvertently gone to ground control. So they weren't on tower frequency. So now she spends some time trying to get a hold of them to give them a taxi clearance to some extent. Her attention is now diverted to that. She was also trying to pull a flight strip for another airplane that was departing, another Wings West airplane, not the SkyWest airplane. And all of a sudden, she became task saturated. She now lost basically mental sight of the fact that she had cleared the Metro liner, the SkyWest Metro liner into a position and hold. And they're sitting at a taxiway or at least in the equivalent of taxiway 45, 2200 feet down the runway. And she's talking to the SkyWest airplane who finally comes back on frequency. And they say, yeah, we're holding short of runway 24 or 24 left at taxiway 47, which is downstream. And so now all of a sudden she's got that as the mental picture again still not cognizant of the fact that she's got an airplane sitting on the runway waiting to take off. Meanwhile, she cleared the U.S. air crew to land. So the board, of course, really dissected her situational awareness, the issues that led to a loss of situational awareness. She misidentified the airplanes. And then when they really got into her history, especially with her supervisor, it was identified that in the months prior to the accident, her supervisor, who was doing a performance evaluation of basically a look over the shoulder, watch her performance, identified four critical things with her performance that were, were negative or derogatory, two of which are the things that were contributing or causal factors in this accident. One, loss of situational awareness, and two, misidentification of an airplane. The supervisor did not take corrective action after he identified it on her performance review. 
And now letting it go led to an accident, a very tragic accident. And of course, the NTSB dissecting all of that really went after them for the lackadaisical, and, and, and that's my word, lackadaisical. But, uh, you know, I could read that there was a, a bit of a cavalier. We'll get to it when we get to it. We'll fix it when we need to fix it. That's one big issue that was identified. Another big issue that really put the controller in a position of jeopardy was the fact that the ground radar, the ASD, that's the airport surveillance uh, detection equipment or ASD radar, it wasn't working or it worked intermittently. And that that, is that a, was a problem system. Yes. So they, and there was a, it was a demonstrated and it was written up and it was not fixed. And John, that's a big issue because that's a tool that the controllers have for watching what's going on on the airport surface. Because again, every control tower, whether they're 200 feet high or you know 50 feet high, you have to be able to have the broad picture of the airport. And the board found that there were blind spots for these controllers up in the tower, especially where there were buildings in the background that presented glare. And in fact, this controller had complained about the fact that she really couldn't discern aircraft on the runway because of all the glare and um, and the other lights that were off airport. And the, while that's not an excuse, the, flood, the floodlights on the towers to 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 light up the ramps so the people working the ramp could see the airplane and load the airplanes and yeah. so on and so on. Uh, there was a set of those lights right in the way of her vision to see where this airplane was. So. Yeah, I mean, some mitigating factors on her side as well. Exactly. And so, you know, yeah, she was ultimately responsible. And in fact, she she basically accepted responsibility at the NTSB hearing for this. But she had these caveats. And so all of a sudden, as we've talked about at the beginning of the show, you cannot dissect an accident in 24 hours or a week and start to develop all of these issues that are either either causal or contributing to an accident, like some of these junior investigators out there who think they can. And, and it's through this kind of thorough and methodical investigation that there were ramifications for, of course, the, not only her as a controller, but the whole process up there, because they were handing flight strips back and forth between the controllers. That diverted her attention because she was looking for a flight strip for another flight. So that takes her basic eye off the ball. So now her attention is diverted. Um, there, there's a little bit of complacency. Of course, situational aware, awareness was totally lost. She misidentified airplanes. She couldn't get it back. And she clears an airplane to land on an occupied runway. And then, of course, you hamstring the controller by not having a valuable tool available, the ASD ground radar, that could have at least provided or at least helped her get her situational awareness back. So you've taken that away from her. And just those two things alone are critical, but then you also have to look at flight crews. And one of the things that the board talked about, and you and I have had this conversation on previous shows, even, even though it may have been in brevity, and that is that people, pilots just tend to listen to their, for their own end number. You know, I, I've got that headset on, I'm listening for 877, you know, zero pop or seven zero pop or whatever, because that's my end number on my airplane. I'm not really paying attention to every, everybody else's end number. But when I'm going into a traffic area, especially around an airport or coming into, uh, into the terminal area, 
I'm not only listening for people talking to me, but I'm listening to find out where the controller is talking to other people that may be in close proximity to me. And that was an issue here, John, if you remember that, you know, yeah, you got this crew sitting on the runway waiting for their, their number to be called to, to take off. Well, I mean, why weren't they plugged in? Because they're all on the same frequency. Why weren't they plugged in listening and hearing the controller clear that 737 to land on the runway that they were occupied on and never, and they not hearing a takeoff clearance for them and reminding the controller, hey, we're still here. You know, there's a, most people don't know this, and I, I assume it's still going on, but back in, this, in these days, the 90s, 80s, uh, there was actually efforts made on the part of the airlines, uh, and that may have been through the Air Transport Association, I forget, but they all, they analyzed all their flight numbers so that they would try to keep them for separate so that flight 880 wouldn't be operated by American Airlines and TWA at the same time going into an airport. Right? As much as they could, they culled all those flight numbers in such a way that you wouldn't have that similar flight numbers. So that because of that hearing, that selective hearing, looking for the numbers and you would be answering to somebody else's radio call. And there's another piece that uh, uh, part of the investigation I'd like to raise that everybody. One of the things that we did, the NTSB did, is we took a helicopter and flew the glide path with a corrected time. You know, every day the, the, because of the sun, it would change, a sunset would. So we've determined on the day of the accident at that time, the position of the sun. And then like, I forget, I think it may have been much as two weeks later, uh, they flew this helicopter down there with an airplane in position on that runway where that airplane was. And you could not see it. It just so happened, you know, sometimes if you don't have bad luck, you don't have any. Right? The way he taxied out and stopped the airplane on the center line, his lights were lined up with the center line. So his white tail light just got mixed into the into yep. the white center line lights, and uh, of course they're not looking for him down there. All right, so you you mentioned that a minute ago. All right, but it's also it was so damn uh, difficult to see him. And the other thing that that came out of that helicopter ride was it was still light on the horizon. The the uh, the twilight was still there. So the pilot's eyes were not adjusted for night. They were still adjusted with daylight in their face. Mm -hmm. So that was another factor that entered into why this, this uh, airplane on the ground was not seen. Yeah, and, and I think I mentioned it earlier, and that was that there was a procedure in place that uh, they didn't want uh, flight crews turning on strobes and, uh, and landing lights on the runway, just sitting there, just because, you know, you have other airplanes that are taxiing, you don't want to blind anybody with the flashing light or the bright lights of the, uh, of the landing lights. So, you know, you would turn down those exterior lights on the takeoff roll on the way out. Well, these guys were just sitting there waiting for a period of time. So there was nothing other than their position lights. And like you said, um, maybe they're rotating beacon on the top, which is a red light. Well, there's all sorts of red lights in the runway environment. 
and the white light, which is the centerline light, there was nothing distinguishable with that aircraft from the runway environment that would have drawn a pilot's attention on final approach. Now, if a strobe light had been on or possibly even their landing lights that illuminated the runway in front of the aircraft, you know, that would have at least drawn their attention to go, what's going on down there? Um, but that was an issue that the board looked at and that was a, a procedure that ended up changing. You know, I, I don't remember exactly when uh, this change took place, but they put the strobe lights on the squat switch, on the, on the uh, landing gear switch uh, that indicates the airplane's on the ground to a lot of systems on the airplane. So they put the strobe lights on that. So even if he turned the, the, the strobe lights on, it may have been controlled by the landing gear switch and yeah. it wouldn't have come on until he lifted off the ground. Yeah, you know, and then the board also made another recommendation that they actually change the operation where they use separate runways for landing and departing aircraft. And um, that was, you know, that was a recommendation that came out of this accident in 1991-92. They didn't do anything with that recommendation, John, until 2004. And they did it because they almost had another collision like this. They had a 737 sitting on the runway and a Korean Air 747 landed right over the top of them on the same runway, on that runway, on 2-4 on left. And it was after that event that they changed the landing and departing runways. But it took them that long to, you know, for whatever reason, get it together. And it took almost another disaster for that to happen. And we have pontificated about the fact that you know, how much is it going to take before somebody does something? You know, the, the board's business is to identify shortcomings, shortcomings and deficiencies to improve aviation safety. That's their whole bailiwick is to make recommendations. Some of them are, of course, heated. Others, you know, like the FAA, thanks for your interest in aviation safety, but we're not doing it. Yeah. And you, in some ways, you've got to be, feel sorry or, or feel the pain of the FAA because they don't have money to do everything that needs to be done. Yep. You know, you and I worked that accident in Charlotte where the uh, thunderstorm activity uh, caused an accident. And yet the, the uh, FAA was unable to get the money to put the right weather equipment on that airport. Yep, they were looking, to, they were, they were gonna upgrade all the towers to Doppler weather radar, but they didn't have the money. Yep. And it took that accident to force the issue to get Congress to allot that money so that these towers could be upgraded with Doppler weather radar. But it was sad that there was a loss of life that forced that issue, even though we knew and the recommendations had come out well before that and the plan was there, it just couldn't be executed or implemented because there were no funds to do it. Right. And that's the same thing with that radar in the, in the tower that we mentioned, that you mentioned a little bit ago. Yeah. The ground um, radar, radar as the, yeah. Right. Because a lot of airports, uh, had the activity, but didn't have the money from the FAA to put the radar in place. And, yeah. Boston, and Boston happened to be one of those. Yeah. Right. That's and, why I'm familiar with that. And, and that's why, you know, this accident, even to this day, 20 years later, um, I mean, 30 years later, sorry, I've been saying 20. I, I guess uh, that's what happens when you get old. Um, 30 years later, when you look at what has actually occurred in this particular event, this isn't anything new 
And oh, by the way, it's still happening. And it, it, it makes us as single pilots operating in our operating our aircraft in these high density environments, not necessarily at a Los Angeles International Airport. But if I go into a busy GA airport, there's a lot of traffic like a Teterboro or something else. You have got to have that tuned hearing because you got to know and keep your situational awareness. Just because the controller hasn't called your number doesn't mean that, you know, um, you, you know, you're in the safety zone. I've investigated a number of accidents where the controllers have forgotten about aircraft, not by any fault of their own, other than the fact that they either get task saturated, they get distracted. And um, I investigated two accidents where guys were on IFR flight plans and ended up flying into the side of a mountain, given a clearance to do that. When in fact, the controller told them to stand by, they were gonna give them a turn. They never got back to them, never turned them. These guys maintained their heading and uh, you know their situational awareness they didn't have all the, the whiz bang gps stuff or the taws to tell them that there's a mountain in front of them and they ended up center punching that mountain so again the controllers are there they are going to give you their best effort their best service but as i always preach the ronald reagan saying trust but verify and if you haven't heard your number called or you have this gut feeling that hey this isn't right make the radio call, at least get someone's attention. You may snap back their, you know, situational awareness because again, they may have forgotten about you because of something else. And again, that's the contribution that you can make to aviation safety. Because again, we live in a very complex, we operate in a very complex system and, you know, it's not beyond error. Uh, I'll true, I'll true. You've got to pay attention, situational awareness. I mean, you can't be disconnected. And yeah. one of the things we touched on uh, in previous shows is, you know what? There's no job in aviation that's unimportant. And with, in, in aviation, we're supposed to fit like a hand in a glove, not OJ Simpson, Simpson's glove, but yeah. really a hand in a glove where we all work together. We understand pieces that they... Air traffic controllers are encouraged to go fly the airlines in the cockpit yeah. and to see, so they understand what's going on in the cockpit, especially those that are not pilots already, right? Yep. Uh, maintenance people, and I worked for US Air, maintenance people could also fly in the cockpit. We could see how they use the instruments, how they how the, uh, be, the pilots behaved, if, and maybe that's not the right word, but just to see how it operates in the real world because we have to pick up sometimes conversations that are a little bit alien to us uh, on problems that, are, that the pilots are experiencing. And one of the things that I had in my notes, I was just looking at them, and you brought this up a little earlier, um, was when the oxygen bottles let go underneath the floor. Um, and of course, the floor started burning and, and made the uh, 1R door inoperative. Um, I was looking at my notes as I was going through the report. And when those oxygen bottles let go, of course, they created more of a blowtorch effect than just a, a burning effect. That in and of itself, and we saw that with ValueJet and how it accelerated the propagation of the fire. Not only did it intensify it, but it caused it to burn faster and hotter. And in this case, that's what reduced the evacuation time in the, uh, in the cabin because that fire was 
propagating or spreading so quickly due to the acceleration when the oxygen bottles let go. And that's why for passengers, um, again, you know, you're trying to keep your cool, calm and collect in a very high stress, high anxiety, panic situation, but you're more apt to get hurt or killed trying to get out of the airplane than the actual event that is causing you to evacuate that aircraft, like in this case, the fire. So again, if you're, it's, it's better to be aware of, okay, what, what's my situational awareness as a passenger? If those two exits in front of me don't work, where am I going behind me? Um, we saw this in, the, in American 1420, when the airplane went off the end of the runway, when airborne got into the catwalk structure for the lead-in lights at Little Rock International Airport, um, the airplane was basically cut up and, and broken open. And passengers, because the center of the aircraft was pinched, a lot of those exits didn't work. It's at night in a rainstorm, and people had to make their way towards the back of the airplane to exit out of a hole that had been created by the destruction or the damage of the fuselage when it hit the catwalk structure. You're going to have to find sometimes your own ways out, and it may not be through a formal exit. It may be in a crack in a fuselage and things like that. That's why presence of mind and paying attention to those safety briefings, because you, you're going to have to snap into action relatively quickly. And again, it's not going to be under the most pristine of circumstances. You know, you, you brought up an, an issue that I just thought of something with. When I fly, there's two things I always have with me. All right, I put my ID in my, on my person, so I have a credit card and, and an ID with me but I also carry two other things. One is a small flashlight. Today, they're really nice because you get these lithium batteries in them and they stay bright for a while and they don't leak so you don't have to keep checking it. And the other thing is a whistle. In fact, they just bought a new one just a few days ago and I travel with the whistle because in those kinds of situations when you beat up, you sometimes can't yell very loud, but you can also blow in a whistle that can be heard a long way. And it's yeah. an alien sound, right? So it penetrates and yeah. it, it can be heard. So I tell yeah. people in my presentations when I talk about survival uh, to carry a flashlight and a whistle. Yeah. In fact, uh, remember the Denver crash where the, the Continental uh, yep. turned upside down? It was a DC, yeah. DC 1713. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, one guy was trapped inside yelling and yelling and yelling until he he couldn't yell anymore. They yeah. didn't rescue him. But that was one of the comments he made that he just didn't have the breath in him anymore to keep yelling so that they could find him. Yeah. And, no, uh, it's the little things, John, that, that people are, are going to have to do to save themselves sometimes. Um, you know, the flight attendants are there for a purpose, but if they're incapacitated or killed, now you're left to your own devices. And that's why every time you get on an airplane and you and I and, and a lot of our listeners are seasoned travelers and flight crew members and flight attendants and everything else, we spend our life on airplanes, but we spend our life on multiple airplanes. And just because you're on a 737 today, I'm on a 747 tomorrow, the exits aren't in the same place. I get on an Airbus there. Yeah, they're in the approximate same position. But again, it's all about knowing the airplane that you're on. And again, having that situational awareness, we expected of flight crew members, we expected of maintenance techs, we expected of flight attendants, we expected of controllers, but there should be an expectation 
of passengers that they too have a situational awareness when that situational awareness is the matter of life and death. Yeah, you know what their you know what their awareness is? If I'm getting off the airplane, I got to get my bag out of the overhead. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it just that just floors me when I see that. So we yeah, I I I'm I'm glad we picked this accident to talk about um again. While these accidents, you know, are old, and in this case, it's 30 years old, my simple math, <laughs> um, a 30-year-old accident still has relevance today because we haven't fixed all the problems. We try to identify them and fix them. But again, a lot of it is left up to the individual themselves as a pilot. And in this case, situational awareness, hearing what's going on on frequency, listening for those other call signs or end numbers that are there. And guess what? If you're in a position where you're sitting on a runway and you hear that a guy calls on, you know, hey, you're at an uncontrolled airport, you just taxied in, you're getting set up or uh, taxied out, you're getting set up to take off, you're going through your checks, you're still sitting on the runway and you hear somebody calling that they're on a short final and it's just like, dude, I'm still on the runway, you know? you've got to snap them back. Maybe they got an airplane where they can't see over the front of the airplane. They don't know that you're down below them. They're looking further down, down the uh, runway or whatever. It's all about having a presence of mind and situational awareness. So again, while we dissect these older accidents, they always still have some level of relevance today. You know, we might come back to this one because we didn't hit all the issues in this. And yeah. We, and we've this gone long already. Yeah. So uh, we might revisit this one again in, in the future. Well, good. Well, I'm glad that you made me pick it. I'm glad we we're able to talk about it. And uh, of course, we always appreciate your feedback as our listeners and viewers, um, because that's what gives us the basis for our discussions um, on this weekly show. So as uh, flight safety detectives, you can always get a hold of us through our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. We always appreciate your comments, your feedback. Definitely give us a like on whatever podcast or YouTube uh, video presenter that, uh, that you're watching or listening to us. And uh, we appreciate that because that's what's going to help build our sponsorship to keep this show going, to take it to the next levels as we've continually talked about trying to incorporate uh, new techniques and, and better, you know, information. And of course, the presentation of that information to make it more entertaining and useful from an education standpoint. I know, John, that uh, you always end our show with talking about our sponsors and, and thanking them. And then, of course, following that, I always leave you with our last word. Yes. So I would like to remind everybody this program brought to you by PAMA the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, and Avemco, the, the general aviation insurance provider. Uh, knowledgeable people, love aviation, and that was obvious uh, to us in, in Oshkosh with them. I mean, uh, uh, I'll mention her name. I don't know if I should, but Masi is just <laughs> un a bundle of energy when it comes to aviation. Yeah, I mean, she's she going to appreciate could, you that. You could not keep her away from all those airplanes out there. She'd come back to the booth and, and she couldn't wait. It's like a, a racehorse just stomping around. Can't can't wait to get back out and go out and look at the airplane. She loved it. Yeah. Uh, so that's the kind of people that I would want uh, to represent me and to my insurance carrier. They, they understand it up and down. 
So if you need insurance on your hull, you need liability insurance, you need uh, CFI insurance, whatever it is for general aviation, give a VEMCO a call, 888-879-0389, VEMCO.com. Just give them a call. Uh, you won't be sorry. And remember to mention flight safety detectives to get your 5%. Because that, that's not too shabby. And for a last word, we're back to flying again. We are seeing an accident rate that's just ramping up like, a, like the stock market recently. I mean, it's just, you know, I, we're in a hurry to catch up with our accident rate that went down yeah. because of the COVID. Yeah. I mean, it's just unbelievable that the accidents that we're seeing on the general aviation side. So please, please pay attention. Do a good pre-planning for your flight. Do a good pre-flight. And, and I've been starting to put that together. We're going to do a, a program on pre-flighting your airplane. And do a good pre-flight. Don't leave anything to chance. And then when you do go flying, please fly safely. <laughs>